Gotta love these New England sprinters, as I'm calling them, these spring winters where we are dry. So I apologize to all of you who are here in this space and those who are listening on the podcast. If I clear my throat or if I cough, I am not contagious. I am just experiencing the effects of living in Massachusetts. So let us, as a beloved and a forgiven people, prepare our spirits for hearing today's gospel reading. We are entering into the gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. And I encourage you, as I read from the Common English Bible translation, to listen or follow along in the biblical language that best connects you with God. So once again, let us hear from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. Let us hear of the transfiguration of Christ. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and brought them to the very top of a very high mountain, and they were alone. And Jesus was transformed right in front of them, and his clothes were amazingly bright, brighter than if they had been bleached. Elijah and Moses appeared and were talking with Jesus, and Peter reacted to all of this, by saying to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let's make three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he said this because he didn't know how to respond, because all three of them were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice spoke from the cloud, saying, This is my son, whom I dearly love. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, except Jesus. And so as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the human one had risen from the dead. And so the three kept it to themselves, but wondering, what is this rising from the dead? Thus ends our reading. The lessons of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Woo! Here we go. It is Transfiguration Sunday, friends. And I like to think of it as the gateway Sunday to the Lenten season. So on your mark, get set, and go. You see what I did there, right? Mark, forget it. Work with me, people. Work with me here. So you may be asking, what the heck is Transfiguration Sunday? How many of us are like hearing this word, maybe for the first time? Yeah, okay. 
So I'm so glad you asked. Y'all are so smart. Now, the Oxford Dictionary defines transfiguration as a noun, a complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. And the example of the word used in a sentence, as Oxford often does, and I have to say I appreciate that this sentence may be proof that even Oxford Dictionary researchers have a sense of humor, that what they use is, in this light, the junk undergoes a transfiguration. It shines. I mean, that sentence alone will preach. Amen? In this light, the junk undergoes a transfiguration. But we all know that God don't make junk. Amen? Now, in the biblical sense of transfiguration, Oxford then uses the word this way. Christ's appearance in radiant glory to three of his disciples. And then Oxford goes on to name the three Gospels where this moment of transfiguration occurs. Matthew 17, verse 2. Mark 9, which we just heard, verses 2 to 3. And Luke 9. Check this out. Verses 28 to 36. Aren't you glad we chose the Mark text today? (laughs) And today we heard exactly that. The Gospel of Mark's recounting of this transfiguration moment on the mountaintop with three of Jesus's closest friends and followers. So first things first, because I don't like to assume that everybody knows everything, let's talk a little bit about the Gospel of Mark because we're going to be spending quite a bit of time with it as we enter into Lent, which are those 40 days leading up to Easter. Now, scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark is actually the oldest of what we call the synoptic Gospels, and the word synoptic is defined as of or forming a general summary or synopsis. And those Gospels are the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke in our New Testament. And all that means is that you can place all three side by side and find similar but not identical timelines and narratives of the life and the death of Jesus Christ. And this transfiguration scene is one that appears in all three in slightly different ways. So Mark is the oldest gospel written, which even in that isn't the whole truth, because while Mark may be the oldest in our canon, which is that biblical collection that we have in our pews and on Bible Gateway, it doesn't mean that it's the oldest gospel, per se. The the chronicles of the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Christ are much older, and they'd actually been floating around for decades following Jesus' death as an oral tradition. But this gospel called Mark is the oldest version committed to the written word that we have in our Bible. And it's meant to be read as a whole by the community or to be heard in community. All of our texts are really meant to be read in succession in order to get the whole picture of what's happening in that moment and what's happening in the time of Jesus. Now, Mark, some of you may have noticed, um, 
is really short and to the point, unlike your pastor. And he really, like, there are moments in Mark that refer back to other moments in the Bible, but he doesn't really explain it because the understanding of those original hearers of Mark, those Jesus-following Jews, they would have known what those references were at the time that the gospel was being read or committed to memory. Now, Mark, as I mentioned before, often refers back to previous conversations or previous events in the scriptures. And this is intended to bring home the kernel of what Mark wants us to know, what the community for whom this gospel was written needs us to know. And that is that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. That these referencing back to previous moments biblically or previous conversations are proof that he is the one who fulfills those ancient prophecies, that he is the one who was promised and the one who will restore God's kingdom on earth. And so when we read or hear the gospel as a whole, we are able to experience the entire arc of Jesus's life as a preacher and as a teacher. It sheds light, not just on the resurrection, which we so often focus on, but on the struggles within Jesus's ministry. It gives us a better picture of the dynamics of the relationships between Jesus and the disciples, between the disciples and the disciples, and how the people received or not the teachings of Christ. And it includes the moment that Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem and begins that journey toward what we know to be the events leading up to Resurrection Sunday, also known as Easter. And this is one of those moments. Now, as usual, Mark is very straightforward and to the point. There isn't a lot of extra detail or explanation of what's going on, which is why I would recommend that y'all check out the other transfiguration narratives, especially the one in Matthew. But here we are alongside Jesus, together with Peter, James, and John. Now, these are the three disciples that have been with Jesus the longest of any of his followers, and they still haven't figured it out. They have been part of the core group ever since Jesus called them with that invitation of come and see or come and follow me. And they still haven't figured it out. So this is my way of saying if you have not figured it out, even after a lifetime of being a Christian, you're going to be okay. If you're still trying to figure out what the heck you're doing here, you're going to be okay. And if you are entering into this for the first time and wonder if you are together enough to receive grace, you're going to be okay. Because they have been part of this core group and they have seen it all. They've heard it all. They're the ones whom Jesus has been walking alongside the one that Jesus is continuing to preach and teach to and with since the beginning. And they are having, quite literally, 
a religious experience of epic proportions. This could be considered perhaps one of the biggest come-to-Jesus moments for them. And I say that this is a religious experience because this moment in time with Jesus is filled with those references that I spoke of before. Filled with references to major biblical moments that would have been deeply embedded in the foundational faith of the Jewish people. It is reminiscent of other mountaintop moments where God has been revealed and blesses those who will listen and be present to God's voice. Now, if you have not grown up in church communities or have not grown up with the Bible, let me explain. Early Jesus followers would have been very familiar with the moment of transfiguration when Moses climbed Mount Sinai. When he was transformed in the presence of the Almighty One and given the commandments that marked the new sacred promise, the new covenant between this newly formed nation at the time called Israel and God. It also echoes the moment on the mountaintop when the prophet Elijah was taken up by the chariot of fire. It's not just a theme song to a movie for those of you who remember. Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind. And so this, this moment, this encounter with God, this would have been reflective of those mountaintop moments as well. For it was just as transformative. And not just for Jesus, but also for Peter, James, and John. And then, as they would have had these stories in their mind, seeing this happening, then Moses and Elijah appear. And they appear with Jesus. These are the same stories and prophecies. And they would have been running through the minds of the disciples as they tried desperately to make sense of what was happening. They have known Jesus, sure, to be a teacher. He's a healer. He's a friend. He's a brother. He's a prophet. And while Jesus has been and is all of those things, those titles don't fully capture exactly who Jesus is. They don't really adequately describe all that he is about to do either. Because his full identity at that point hadn't been realized yet. This is another moment of epiphany as well. Amen. Certainly, his identity hasn't been realized by the crowds which follow him or surround him, the ones that are seeking his teachings and his healings. They know that something powerful is happening, but they're, they're not 100% sure. And even the disciples themselves struggle to find words to describe Jesus when folks along the way, both everyday people and religious leaders, have asked them, who is this person you follow? So again, if you have difficulty expressing who Jesus is, you're going to be okay. But here's one of the moments, and Peter's famous for this. He gets close. 
In fact, he gets so close to recognizing the fullness of Jesus' nature, of who Jesus truly is, that he gets so excited that he blurts something out without thinking and messes it up. Who hasn't done that? Peter, the one whom the church is built on, gets excited and messes it up. See, Peter recognizes the importance of what is happening. He recognizes that this is a moment of brilliance, literally and figuratively. His eyes have been opened in a way that they, he is seeing Jesus in a way that he has never seen him before. And so he says, and I quote, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Teacher, I'm so glad we've seen this. Let's make three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. See, he knows this is important and powerful, but he still doesn't completely understand what he's seeing. But it's so important that he knows that other people need to know and experience this too. So he suggests that they build something permanent there. He suggests that they build tents, dwelling places, literal homes for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus right in that place. Now, scholars who've studied this particular passage have suggested that at the root of Peter's suggestion to memorialize this, to build these permanent structures, this is his attempt to capture this moment and preserve it, to keep it safe. Haven't we all said that before? Ooh, I wish I could just capture this moment in time. This is his attempt to do that. And so he trips over himself to explain his plans, to convince Jesus of his plan. We can hear Peter's need to process what's happening and express and explain himself at the same time. We all know that don't work. But he's trying to explain himself for wanting to keep this moment, to keep this physical space. But then, as often happens when Peter is speaking, God's presence and voice fills that space and interrupts him. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice spoke from the cloud, This is my son, whom I dearly love. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus. Does this sound familiar? It's that same voice which filled the skies at Jesus' baptism, revealing him to be the Messiah. My child, in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And in that moment, the three disciples know they are in the presence of God. And they quietly freak out, fall to their knees, go into fight or flight mode. And then just as suddenly, It's quiet. It's so quiet. And Jesus and the disciples 
not alone once again. And I imagine that in some point, in the quiet, in the silence, Jesus approaches them and utters those words, do not be afraid. This is what is told to us in Matthew. Mark, as usual, is pretty short on words. Now put yourself in that space. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Can you imagine being in that moment? Just think about it. You've just seen something spectacular and awesome in every sense of the word, and you don't know what to do with yourself. And Jesus reaches out to you, touches you, comforts you, and assures you that what has just happened is not something to be afraid of. It's not something to protect and keep from others, but it's part of something bigger that is meant to be shared, but not kept on a mountaintop, but shared in action. This something bigger is something that will be equally as astounding and frightening and awesome as what they have just experienced, but they have to come down off the mountain to live in it and truly experience it. They have to continue on being an active partner in the next part of the story as it unfolds. They have to leave the mountain and the light and the glory that they experience there and re-enter the world. They have to leave the comfort of that moment and walk down into the unknown. And we have to do the same, church. So often, we see our buildings as the only place where people can encounter the divine. So often, we see our sanctuaries or our sacred spaces of our own making as the only place to meet God. And as we approach this season of Lent, sometimes, sometimes, we see the church as the only place to experience resurrection. But we need to remember that Lent is intended to be a time of contemplation, of learning, of listening, and of living our faith in the world of coming down off the mountain and bringing that message of transfiguration and transformation into the unknown. It's the same kind of moment, this Lenten period that we are blessed with. It's the same kind of moment the disciples are about to enter into, the moment they walk off that mountain and they don't even realize it. 
But as many of you have heard me say before, and I will say it again, we have the benefit of knowing how the story ends. We know that there is a light in the shadows. We know that there is transformation available to us when we exit into the wilderness, when we step down off the mountain. But we have to be willing to embrace the transformation that comes with the knowing. And part of that transformation can only occur when we come off the mountain. We have to be willing to lean into it. We cannot remain in one place. And I mean that spiritually as well as physically. We cannot remain in one place. Instead, we need to experience Lent as a way to deepen our understanding of who Jesus is in our lives and in the world. So as we come up on this time of introspection, as we look forward to the upcoming Lenten season, may we do it not with fear or apprehension. You have heard me say it before. Do not give up those things that are life-giving. Eat the chocolate. Enjoy the carbs. Do not let this be a time of punishing yourself and your body, which is good. Your body is good. Say it with me. Our bodies are good, for God created them. It is not a time of deprivation, but a time of exploration. Let us do it with wonder and hope. So on your mark, get set, go. Let us get up. Let us take this message out into the world and into ourselves. May it be so. Amen.